Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We welcome back Tom Hartman today for Spirit in Action for his seventh time on the show, sharing about his latest book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living, and it's full of the kind of historical scrutiny and keen analysis to expose and clarify the facts behind our much-vaunted form of government. You likely know Tom Hartman, the number one U.S. progressive talk show host, as well as a prolific and persuasive writer. But you may or may not know our second guest that we'll have today, Myron Buckholz, former high school history teacher and former Democratic primary candidate for Wisconsin's 3rd District of the House of Representatives. There's deep insights coming in as we first go to Zoom to visit with Tom Hartman. I'm so good to see you again for Spirit in Action. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. And you cranked out another book. And what? You're trying to do two Hidden History series books per year, right? So far, for for about five years, that's what we've been doing, yeah. Short books, so, you know, it's not an onerous task. Well, maybe not for you, but for us mere mortals, that's another thing. And that's in addition to all your regular radio programs, weekly articles, all of that. One more thing that occurred to me, I've interviewed you previously about six different books that you've written. This one is on the hidden history of American democracy, rediscovering humanity's ancient way of living. This is the seventh book I've interviewed you about, and I was wondering if there was some order of priority, a precedence. I mean, I've heard people talking about what we really need to change first is our electoral system, because that's the thing that enables all the other changes. But I also have a feeling that other changes enable our changes in the electoral system. Do you have any sense of the priorities to that order? Because we've talked about Big Brother, health care, monopolies, neoliberalism, oligarchy, the war on voting. Is there one that goes before the others? Not really. I mean, each book was written to stand alone. Very rarely do the books refer to previous books. And when they do, it's in a way that is not necessary for the sentence or paragraph or chapter to make sense. And frankly, the process, you know, when we started, we had my original contract was for two books and we knew what those two books were. And then every time, and they did well and the publisher came back and said, how about another two books? And then we would just have this kind of brainstorming process to figure out what the topics would be. This book on democracy is one that I've wanted to write for a long, long time and was just an enormous amount of fun researching. And I learned a lot. And, you know, I think people reading it will learn a lot. It's, it, I think it's one of the best of the series. I think that we're all raised with these misconceptions about where democracy happened, how it came about. I think for most of us, well, yeah, you know, in ancient Greece, they experimented with it, or maybe in Rome, one of those many places. And we think that the Enlightenment is a source of democracy as a concept. You say it's really in the bones of humanity, I think. That may be a rather overarching statement I'm making. Put it in your own words, Tom. Well, a decade or so ago, a couple of British scientists proposed this hypothesis that we have been... Uh, anthropomorphizing nature that we believe that animals throughout the animal kingdom actually behave like 
in kingdoms, you know, that there's an, a lead animal, a king, essentially, or a queen, who is the one who makes all the decisions, the alpha animal. And they suggested that actually the alpha animal probably, because there are such things, probably would just have first choice of sexual partner, of mate. And that, you know, comports with Darwin's theory of natural selection, passing along the strongest genes. But then when it came to decision-making, in all probability, we would ultimately find that decision-making in most animals would be done via democratic processes, by majority rule. So they published this in Nature, and, and then um, uh, some other scientists, James Randerson and a few others, got together and said, let's test this. And there was a herd of red deer near the university and in the forest that the university owned. And so they put cameras in the trees and they tracked these deer. And what they found was that, indeed, they voted that when it came more or less around the time typically that they would go to have a drink, there were three watering holes and the various animals would point their bodies at one of the three watering holes as they were grazing. And when 51% of the animals were pointing at one particular watering hole, boom, the whole herd would organize itself and head right to that watering hole. So I called up uh, Kent Conrad and said, you know, what happened when you published this in Nature, you know, in this peer-reviewed journal? And he said, oh, it was amazing. He said, I heard from the bug people. You know, you see a ball of gnats in the air and suddenly it just kind of moves like this. You know, in the summertime, you see these balls of gnats moving around. How do they do that? You know, is it telepathic? No, they, with every wing beat, they're voting. And when more than 51% of the gnats have, you know, moved slightly to the right, the whole ball of gnats moves to the right. A fish guy said, well, this accounts for schooling behavior with fish. Literally every motion of their body is a vote. And they're constantly measuring the votes all around them. They're continuously voting and continuously counting votes. Same thing with birds and flocking behavior. So it turns out that with virtually all animal species, democracy is the default mode. And this includes all the higher primates and us. So if you start with that premise that democracy is our natural state, then, you know, the, those societies that have had the longest period of time without conquest or interruption to figure out how best to live probably are going to end up living in a democratic system. And, uh, you know, Europe, of course, was tribal up until around 3,000 years ago. And then 3,000 years ago, the Celts came through and organized trading systems across Europe. And then 2,000 years ago, it was the Romans, and they imposed their language. And then 1,000 years ago, it was the Catholics, and they imposed their religion. And so, you know, you could argue that our system of kings and queens and everything is really quite recent. And in fact, and our worldview is not only you know, anthropomorphic, but it's also uh, Eurocentric. So A, we start out by saying, oh yeah, America's based on the Greek democracy or the Roman Republic. No, not really. The Greek democracy was more of a pure democracy. We have a representative democracy. The Roman Republic had a Senate, but that was about it. It very much did not resemble American democracy. So then people fall back and say, well, it must have been a bunch of white guys who were philosophers during the Enlightenment, you know, Rousseau and Hobbes and John Locke and people like that. And it turns out that from the early 1700s, well, actually back in the late 1600s, the French trappers in search of pelts had done a really thorough job of penetrating the eastern part of the Midwest, you know, the Ohio River Valley, western Pennsylvania, western New York, Michigan, Indiana. And they brought with them French missionaries, the Jesuit missionaries. And these missionaries started publishing in the early 1700s an annual report back to France about what they were encountering living with the savages. And one of the Iroquois tribes, the, the Hurons, actually welcomed these folks in and let them set up shop and, and try to evangelize them and everything else. And so the Hurons uh, learned French. So these reports that were going back to France every year, these basically 100-page kind of narratives of what had happened in the previous year, created a huge sensation. I mean, these are major bestsellers across Europe. 
And at that time in France, there was also this phenomena called salons, where wealthy women would invite a featured speaker to their home, and people would come and learn about that. And there was all this demand for these Native Americans to come and speak that the French missionaries had been writing about. And so they organized a couple of trips where Huron leaders who spoke French were taken to France and participated in these salons. And now we discover that Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Dennis Diderot and John Locke actually attended some of these salons, and that this is how the ideas of democracy really hit the Enlightenment, the period of the Enlightenment. And so it went from the Hurons to the French, back to the United States, to the founders, although some of the founders knew well, particularly Jefferson Adams and, and Franklin knew well about the Native Americans and what they were up to, but others had no clue. And that's how we ended up with our democracy. It's a pretty complex story. You mentioned, though, that it's not only the Native peoples, the indigenous peoples from the Americas who had this way of organizing, but that, in fact, Native and indigenous peoples across the world, that it seems to be their normal way of working, too, that they also have this democratic way of functioning. Did I get that right? Is that true? Yeah, there was a piece that was published just uh, two weeks ago in Nature magazine, the peer-reviewed science journal, by a group of anthropologists and archaeologists who are working in Central America. And they've discovered all these cities that nobody knew were there now that they've got, you know, x-ray mapping from airplanes and things, ancient cities. And in many of them, not all, I mean, not all Aboriginal societies are democratic. Some were dominator societies. They, They were little despotic, you know, kingdoms. But what they found is that the majority of these seem to have been not only democratic, but egalitarian. There was no evidence of great wealth, no evidence of great poverty, and no evidence of a ruling class. And the conclusion that they drew based on the research that they did in this article was that those societies that were democratic were far more resilient, far more likely to last long, uh, longer periods of time than their neighbors that were run tyrannically. So, yeah, you see this all over the world. You see it uh, wherever people have not been conquered in the last thousand years, where trial and error over tens of thousands of years has been allowed to exist. You see an awful lot of democracy. I've been exposed to the idea that what enables the kind of tyrannical behavior we have is acquisition. When you're nomadic, you can't really do that because there's a very limited amount that you can carry on your camel or on your back or wherever. That, in fact, it was agriculture that enabled us to live in one place, build up wealth, and therefore unequally develop and unequally divide the wealth that we have between people. Does that make sense in terms of what you're talking about in the hidden history of American democracy? Yes and no. I mean, that's Dan Quinn's hypothesis from uh, Ishmael, which is a book really worth reading. It's a novel, but it's just, you know, a marvelous eye-opening kind of insight. And the story of B and my Ishmael. Let's get all the follow-up stories in there. Yeah, all three of them. Dan was a good guy. I miss him. And there's some truth to that. There's, in fact, a lot of truth to that. In particular, if you read uh, Peter Farb's, uh, you know, First Contact Ethnographies, uh, his book, Man's Rise to Civilization, it was published in 1964, I think, about native first contact with 34 different native communities in North America in the 1600s. And not all of them were democratic, but most of them were. But interestingly, and also Graeber and Wengro talk about this in The Dawn of Everything, there were tribes that actually practiced slavery in North America. The main ones were where I live here in in the Portland area in the Pacific Northwest. And it appears that the reason why was because there are salmon runs, you know, once or twice a year, and that's it. And these were tribes that heavily depended upon salmon as their food source. And so 
you know, they would catch just piles and piles and piles of salmon. They would uh, preserve it. They would, you know, smoke it. And then, yeah, somebody locked up the food. And in doing so, that then even led to not just tyranny, but slavery. It was the exception, not the rule. And we know that it's possible to have agriculture and democracy because there are democratic societies that are agriculture-based, you know, that that have emerged over the last 7,000 years. There's multiple ones. You know, most of them were not large in empire, you know, like the United States. Uh, you had the low counties in, in Holland, for example, that back in the in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century were experimenting with democracy quite successfully. So it's not it's not entirely unique. One of the things that occurred to me, particularly as I looked back over the whole Tom Hartman Hidden History series, you talk about oligarchies and you talk about monopolies, and I don't think you've ever written one on fascism, so I think it probably needs its own volume too. I'm wondering what forms of governance we've really had in the world. I mean, democracy is one amongst many. Theocracy is one of them, and you address that in the hidden history of American democracy, how antithetical it is to democracy. What other major options should we consider as the alternatives out there that humanity has experimented with? Jefferson identified the three, and I read about this in my book, Screwed, back years ago. Uh, he identified the three forms of tyranny, is what he referred to them as. Um, one was theocracy, you know, rule by uh, divine right. The second was uh, rule by wealth. Uh, what you could call oligarchy or plutocracy. And the third was rule by violence, uh, warlord kings and conquest. And then, of course, you know, in Jefferson's mind, the fourth option was democracy, a democratic republic, or what he referred to as a republican form of government. I think that's a pretty good analysis. We've had a lot of various things that go by various names like communism and socialism and whatnot, but they all really fit fairly neatly into those categories, I think. Yeah, I'm well aware of the possibilities of religion to become dominating and controlling as an anti-democratic force. But of course, since I'm Quaker, I know of at least one religion that does not work that way. I'm sure you know that Thomas Paine grew up Quaker, for example. And because Quakers make decisions in unity, I think it's kind of deliberately maybe pro-democratic, or maybe it's actually even beyond democratic. Don't Native communities also have religion threaded into their governance? It depends on the community, but generally, yes. But the thing to remember is that heterogeneous societies are very, very rare. Most Native societies, Aboriginal societies are homogenous. You know, they're all genetically the same, and they share a common belief system. So, you know, their form of governance would be uh, intertwined or interlaced with that belief system, that uh, cosmology, as it were. Yeah, I don't know what to say beyond that. The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Ways of Living by Tom Hartman. Again, folks, that's what and who we're being inspired by today for Spirit in Action. You cover a whole lot of interesting things, Tom, and I'm just going to spotlight a few of them since we have only half an hour today. The Edmonton Tea Party was a fun one for me because everyone knows about the Boston Tea Party, but the Edmonton Tea Party in 1774 was a tea boy caught as opposed to taking the tea and dumping it in the harbor as was done at the Boston Tea Party. That seemed to me a much more Quakerly way of doing it than the Boston Tea Party's vandalism. 
I was wondering about the economic forces the two protests use, particularly in terms of their contributions in the direction of democracy. Did the Eddington Tea Party and the pretty successful boycott movement that it led in 1775 to British tea... Did that have an effect in terms of moving towards democracy, or did it just get the British pissed? I think that whole era, you know, in in 1773 or 72, Jefferson wrote a summary view of the rights of British Americans, which was basically a book about how colonists could be good British subjects. In 1773, then you had, as I recall, you had the Boston Tea Party. And pretty much everybody's worldview shifted around that time. There was an economic recession that started in 1771. And the British East India Company really started clamping down on what they referred to as smugglers, people who were bringing tea into the United States without doing it through the monopoly that the king had granted, or the queen actually, or no, the king at that time, George II, had granted the East India Company. And um, that was the, the beginning of pushing back against corporate governance and corporate rule in a big way. There were also attempts to push back against patriarchy as well. But that that was the Economics and governance are really hard to disentangle, generally speaking. Well, and you do have a section of the book where you talk about that and the relationship between them. And I think it deserves more analysis, more thought by us. And maybe before doing that, you could give us a rating for America right now, how democratic or how close to democratic we are. I don't know what the ideal example is, maybe Greece or Athens at one point. I'm not sure if anyone has ever reached 100%. Well, let me answer that a different way. The fourth part of the book is uh, 20 some odd suggestions for ways to improve our democracy and our nation. And keeping with the theme of the book, all of them are things that are supported by more than 50% of Americans. And there are things like, you know, uh, having a national healthcare system that provides everybody with coverage and is inexpensive, uh, having a national educational system where, you know, you've got high quality primary and secondary education and college is free or very, very inexpensive just as two examples. If you you know ask the question, if the majority of Americans want these things, why don't we have them? The answer is pretty straightforward. You know, in, in 1976 and 78, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery. And the consequence of that has been that the people who have the money to bribe politicians end up controlling our government and uh, to their own economic and, and political advantage. And so in that context, I'd say, you know, well, as Jimmy Carter said to me seven years ago on my program, he said, America is no longer a democracy. Now it's an oligarchy with, because of Citizens United, with political bribery at the core of everything, and people just expecting, you know, favors when they pay off politicians. So, you know, we have a very troubled democracy right now, in large part because of these decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court, or I shouldn't even say by the Supreme Court, because it was always by by Republicans on the Supreme Court exclusively. Uh, But yeah, we're not in really great shape. For that matter, how confident are you that democracy is a good idea? I mean, if 75% of the people in this nation were hard-right Republicans, then democracy would simply be a pretty bad thing, perhaps. I mean, obviously, we try and moderate its influence so that minorities don't get crushed by the majority view. So democracy plus something equals the really good way to rule? Well, you you want to have rules for the game of politics, just like you want to have rules for the game of football. I mean, you know, if if the rules of football were that whichever team gave the NFL commissioners the largest bribe could have an extra three men on the on the field compared to the 
the team that didn't give the biggest bribe, football get pretty damn boring <laughs> and, and eventually dissolve into irrelevance. And that's the problem that we have with our democracy right now. I really think that democracy is a good thing. And in the context of those rules, I mean, the overarching rule has to be not just what Jefferson identified in the Declaration of Independence, you know, the, the government derives its power from the consent of the governed, but also has a, a respect for the, the human rights of humanity. And I don't know of any functioning democracies that don't have that as a predicate, you know, that we're here to serve the, you know, based on a substrate of the, of human rights. And that's laid out in the Declaration, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, based on that substrate of human rights, we then have a set of rules about how we conduct ourselves in this democracy. I think with respect to maybe it was the Native Americans you're referring to, you said that they were not only democratic, but egalitarian, and that egalitarianism is part of what's needed, right? Democracy works best in egalitarian societies, and the more unequal a society becomes, the more vulnerable it is to corruption by political bribery, essentially. And that's one of the real challenges that we face right now, is that right now the United States has uh, greater riches concentrated at the top and greater poverty concentrated at the bottom than in any time in our entire history. And in fact, we have several people who are richer than even the pharaohs. I mean, you know, we have levels of wealth that are beyond pharaonic. And that is one of the major challenges, you know, facing us as a democracy. So what to do, what to do about that? And the majority of people would say tax the rich. You know, the average American billionaire pays 3.4% income taxes. The vast majority of Americans think billionaires should at least pay the same taxes as bus drivers. But you don't have that because five Republicans on the Supreme Court legalized political bribery. One of the things you mentioned in the book, which I hadn't thought enough about before, I mean, I was quite aware of the tension between the House of Representatives and the Senate, and that the Senate, with two senators from each state, including really tiny states, gave them inordinate power to a handful of people. What, again, is the reason that we have that stupid setup? The Senate was a compromise to bring the small states in because, you know, the House, uh, everybody is representing the same number of people in the House of Representatives and, and the small states ended up with fewer representatives and they felt like they weren't represented well. The founders did want to have a bicameral legislature because they wanted a system of checks and balances. And the Senate is what they came up with. The problem that we have right now is that the 50 Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more people than the 50 Republicans do. And the solution that I propose in the book, I mean, one solution would be to break California into three states and New York into two states and stuff like that, but that's not going to happen. So the easier solution is to do for political purposes what has been done for political purposes in the past. Uh, in 1863, uh, Abraham Lincoln wanted two more Republican senators. It required 120,000 citizens to have statehood, but he made the Nevada Territory with only 7,000 people in it a state just to get two Republican senators. Ulysses S. Grant did the same thing with Colorado Territory, which only had 30,000 people, turned it into a state to get two more Republican senators. Benjamin Harrison wanted four Republican senators. And so he took the Dakota Territory, which itself barely qualified as a state, and split it into two states and got four Republican senators. And they all did this right out in the open for purely for the purposes of maintaining control of the Senate. So I'm suggesting Democrats should play the same game and uh, incorporate the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as states as you know, low-hanging fruit. The U.S. Virgin Islands could become a state. It has a population similar to Vermont and D.C. 
and then if you really wanted to go nuts you've got you know all the pacific islands guam and the solomon islands and i don't even remember the names of all of them but in aggregate they are much larger in population actually than wyoming or vermont well i'd vote for that In current news, there is some discussion of the threat to democracy with what's happening in the Middle East. Many Americans tend to value Israel as a democracy in an area that's overwhelmingly not democratic. And yet with the recent law there that's trying to strip some of the power from the Israeli Supreme Court to make it so that they can't offset Netanyahu and the Knesset's power in Israel, just how threatened is democracy in Israel by this kind of thing? And what lessons has that got for us in the United States in terms of democracy? Yeah, I'm not a, a real scholar of Israeli politics. It, it, it seems that the big conflict that's coming down now is religious versus secular. And Netanyahu has thrown his lot in with the religious. And the Supreme Court tends to lean more toward the secular. But, you know, Netanyahu himself is, you know, an authoritarian, like Trump was an authoritarian, like Orban is an authoritarian, like Putin's an authoritarian. I don't think it's a good thing for Israel, frankly, over the long term, but I'm not the best guy to ask that question of. I know that we're really limited in terms of what we can cover today, but I do hope that everybody reads The Hidden History of American Democracy and all of your other books, the 25 to 30 of them. But one item that I did want to mention that people should know about you that they probably don't already know is, I mean, you do many, many good things. Your daily broadcasts, the articles you write, you're the number one progressive voice on talk radio, but you're also a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, and I think that deserves some recognition. Tell us about the award. Well, thank you, Mark. There's a foundation in in California. I'm I'm sorry if I don't remember exactly where that is associated with a school with one of the University of California schools of journalism, as I recall. And every year they come up with the top 10 stories that really should have been big major national stories, but were not in large part because they didn't comport with conventional wisdom or the media would have found them uncomfortable. They give this project censored award to those. And for four years over a six year period, I, I won one of those awards and then they publish those stories in an annual book that they publish called Project Censored. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great honor, actually, and I'm very happy that they gave it to me. It's well-deserved. Again, there's so much more that we could cover. I love your books. I love your program. I love the work that you've been doing for so many years now, and I do feel like the world's a better place because of your work. Thank you so much for doing all of these and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark. And the world's in a better place for the work that you're doing, too. Please keep it up. And and thank you again for the honor of inviting me on your program. The honor is mine, Tom. Folks, we have links to Tom Hartman and his books, and you can listen to all of the seven times I've had Tom here via the Northern Spirit Radio website. Post a comment when you visit and donate to support us. Make our work sustainable when you visit. We've got 19 years of guests and all kinds of links to them. And then there's the 35 to 45 stations that carry our programs. Find them on NorthernSpiritRadio.org as well. All this good work being done by Tom via Northern Spirit Radio programs, via these community radio stations, and your support makes the difference. So help us out as you're able. We've got part two of this look at American democracy. So I've invited Myron Buckholz. 
Myron was a high school history teacher and a creative one at that, work that allowed him not only to examine the historical facts, but how to convey those facts to inquiring minds. Myron Buckholz joins me in person for further examination of American democracy. Myron, it's great to have you back finally for Spirit in Action. Hello, Mark. And I'm a little upset with you because you made me work. Yeah. The thing is, I think it was, it's, it was 2015 was your last year, end of your teaching at high school. Correct. I don't assume you stopped taking in vital information. As a matter of fact, when you ran for Congress, I figured you had to bone up quite a bit, too, at least for current events. Yeah, but when you're running for Congress, you can say anything you want. <laughs> It's 2023. Facts really don't matter anymore. Let's talk about your past as a history teacher, high school level. What did you teach for what years? How long? Well, I always say the same thing. I loved what I did. I got out at the end of the golden age of education. I taught from 1981 until 2015. In the last 18 years at Eau Claire Memorial, just kind of a magnet school, such an amazing curriculum, amazing staff up and down the line. And so I was really fortunate. And you were teaching U.S. history. Did you teach the full breadth of U.S. history and world history? No, it's one of those things I like to point out to people in our age group is that when you and I took U.S. history in high school, it was almost certainly a junior, senior level course because it was thought to be kind of an adult level course, something you need to have as you leave your high school world. And across the country, U.S. history is devolved to a semester at freshman level. And uh, I had a co-worker talk about it's going the way of Latin. So what I taught was only from the Great Depression forward when I had a mainstream ninth grade history class. About half the time I had an AP U.S. history class, and that went for the whole, the whole nine yards. The difference between that and civics, because again, we're going to be talking about democracy today. We already had Tom Hartman talking about his book, Hidden History of American Democracy. Civics is some portion of that. So you didn't teach civics, did you, or did you sometimes? No, I didn't teach civics from my last, well, my first 12 years. I did. Uh, where I was before was called, it had a much better title. It was called Problems of Democracy. I think that says a lot. And civics is, you know, the inner workings of how we're supposed to be in a democratic society and functioning because as a citizen, you're supposed to be a participant and know some basic things and know how to participate. It's an amazingly useful course. And that is at at my last school, it was a junior level course. That was good, but it was a, a semester. Well, let's talk about some details about democracy. And again, I'm especially hoping to extend or contrast with what Tom Hartman was able to say. I think that many people in the world, and certainly people in the U.S., think of America as the great experiment in democracy. Is that how you taught it? Is that what you thought as you were teaching it? Well, I think historically it's pretty undeniable as far as our march through time. There were, you know, examples of democratic principles in action. Previously, you know, they lasted various amounts of time. The the Roman Republic lasted for 200 years, partially why I think Ben Franklin was asked about what kind of government he responded, a, a republic if you can keep it knowing how difficult that was because the Romans lost theirs. And when I was teaching, I would say we are the Romans of our time. We've had a couple hundred years, and let's see if we can keep it. 
So there's lots of other features throughout history that, uh, but you know, going back to the ancient Greeks, where generally we start thinking about this for a short period of time, and you know, the, for the ancient Athens, it was free men, citizens of Athens, who could vote. You know, so it's it's always been very limited, and that's kind of plays out throughout so much of history. The good news is when you look at a world map and look at a couple of the different groups that track levels of democracy, levels of freedom. Compared to the 1700s, the world is in a much, much better place. Naysayer, negativities, people like me fret that it's 2023 and we should be a lot farther along. And yet the powers that resist true democracy are so entrenched and so strong that it's a continual struggle. You must have in your mind, in your heart, some kind of a map of the progress of democracy within the U.S., uh, high points and low points in American history. When was it strong? Where was it particularly threatened? How much of a democracy are we? Any of those thoughts? Well, that's why you said you made me work, because you have to think about these things, and there is no soundbite answer. It's an ebb and a flow, and... As I said earlier, the good news is it is certainly better than it was. The great majority of the 7 billion people on the planet have way more ability to participate in a democratic form of government than at 1700. Because at 1700, it was about zero. It was all monarchy. I had this wonderful interactive map and the countries of the world as would change colors going through the decades based on their form of government. The light blue color was, you know, dark blue was a real true democracy. And I would always ask my students, why did the United States stay light blue for so long when it wasn't number one? And of course, minorities, including women. Well, women aren't a minority, but... They're a majority, actually. (laughs) Yes, the majority, uh, not being able to participate not being able to vote. So we had this limited democracy officially until 1920 when women were granted the right to vote. And I always like to point out to my female students and male students too that black men were considered less than human by a significant, possibly a majority of white males in this country. And they were given the right to vote in 1870. That's 50 years before women. So it's like, how's that supposed to make you feel, girls? You know, the history in that struggle, women were instrumental in getting black men the right to vote. They fought hard and got left out. One of my favorite goofy things is the defense that white men made for not allowing women to vote was that it would make them less feminine while they were working 16-hour shifts in a sweatshop. So putting an X on a piece of paper by somebody's name will ruin your femininity, but standing at a loom for 16 hours doesn't bother you a bit. I always think it really enhances a woman if she stands 16 hours by a loom. That's just obviously the peak of femininity. There you go. You would talk about democracy being most threatened, most tentative in the U.S. I mean, I think at one point, I think it was you mentioned to me around 1800, Thomas Jefferson and other people, that they were at each other's throats in such a way that things could have easily tipped. I mean, the power struggle and acrimony was particularly high, I think, around then, early 1800s in any case. Was it Churchill who said it's the worst form of government until you consider all the others? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's an argument. By nature, it's an argument. And people who are attracted to authoritarianism are more willing to just accept being told what to do. That's easy. 
authoritarianism is very easy. Democracy is very hard. You know, the in between lies the rub. Now, you asked me this question from the beginning of our democratic experiment, landowning white males have, with rare exception, had democracy. So if you just separate out that group, we're very democratic. Now, money and power and all those things get involved as well, but it just simply leaves out significant swaths of our population. And that's kind of rare. I was thinking about that because of your question. And I'm not exactly sure I'm confident in saying that with countries of the world that have had democratic features, which ones have denied the right to vote to such a large majority of their populations. I think we're probably number one in that regard. Historically, when you take minorities and women who are denied the right, and then coming back, and we always seem to have a small but, but a significant percentage of people who are working to take the voting rights away from people. They're so concerned. This idea of voter fraud in the modern sense it just is another version of Jim Crow. It's another version of you know, voting makes you less feminine. It's just another excuse. And they're very good at speaking about it and writing about it in such a way that makes people go, well, yeah, you know, you should have a photo ID to vote. And I think not necessary. And then they set it up so the way you get your ID in Texas is make sure that you drive to one place in Texas because close down all the rest of them. One of the fights against that is the 24th Amendment's ban on the poll tax. Do you have to pay money to vote? Back in the day, it ranged somewhere between $25 to $50, I understand, to vote adjusted for inflation in today's value. Well, it was a way that states raised money. And even Wisconsin, a bastion of democracy there's ever been one, had a poll tax for a while. But it was fairly minimal to everybody where the poll tax used to almost completely eliminate blacks from voting across southern states was set high enough so that poor working folks couldn't pay it. And then it would be waived for the poor white folks that showed up to vote. It was just so arbitrarily implemented. It It took an amendment to the Constitution to force states to give up the poll tax. My question about high points and low points in terms of American democracy, I was kind of assuming, and I don't have the proof of it, I figure you have the detailed study of it, that the points in the U.S. system where we allowed people who didn't own land to become voters when it was allowed for African-Americans to have the vote, African-American men, when we've allowed women. Those are all steps. But linked with that is the control of the U.S. government by corporations. I mean, before we're even a nation, East India Company, and they're the ones who are really controlling things for the nation. I don't, they didn't necessarily control the voting, but if they can control the media, if they have the wealth to control advertising, getting the word out, out and all the efforts to do that, that the points when centralized control of so much of our apparatus is held in few hands, that's when I figure democracy is at a low ebb. So I think in the later 1800s, that was probably the case, right? You know, along with, you know, all the rich oil and steel barons and all of that kind of thing. And I assume that somehow the 50s might be a high point of Americans voting and fair representation. I I don't know if that's true. What, What do you perceive? Money is power. And the Supreme Court has ruled that money is speech. And it certainly is. 
And if the more money you have, the more speech you have. That's the difficult part of that current concept. Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. Though current freak out over voter ID and voter fraud, I think misses a major point in that people vote on the precinct level and they always have. It's your neighbors. You sit down at a table, your neighbors come by and they mark the ballot. As long as you have access to being able to do that, you can participate. Now, in a current sense, we have corporate media bombarding us all the time with messages. I'm not so sure that was the case until probably pretty recently with electronic information. I, you know, That would be something to look more into and discuss a little bit more. But one of the frustrations I have with this current sense is that I have been voting since 1976. And with the exception of the COVID year, I have never waited more than 10 minutes to vote. And the COVID year, I only waited because I was in line in my car and I made the foolish mistake of wanting to participate right away. And I got in a long line of cars in Eau Claire. So I sat in my car with my cup of coffee and my local newspaper and passed the 45 minutes it took me to vote. Why do you read about people waiting hours to vote? That's by design. The precincts, the locals, know exactly how many people are going to show up to vote. And if they want to, they'll arrange for a reasonable number of voting places so that you show up, you walk in, you wait a few minutes, you vote, and you go home. Not stand outside in a line for two or three or four hours. The stories you hear are just absolutely crazy. And I don't feel like our media and politicians ask that question. If we simply want people to vote, we make it easy to vote. I think the answer, you know, to that, the response to that at least becomes pretty obvious. If we wanted to, we could. Powerful people don't want you to. It's a real problem. I mean, in ancient Athens, they got together in the town square and they voted and they still do it that way in Vermont, right? Isn't it a town meeting in Vermont? They all get together and they raise their hand. I've never voted there. Well, you should. Before the secret ballot, we used to vote like that. And then you would have voting done in halls, frequently run by bosses. Well, I think of Tammany Hall. I think of Mayor Daly's stuff in Chicago. Yeah, so in alluding to your question about how much power in corporations and so on, without the secret ballot, it was a real power. Because you want to keep your job, you'll vote for Smith. Be a radical and vote for Jones, and in, in, especially in the larger cities. People come down on your head, very, don't they? <laughs> very powerful control. My folks were children of the 1920s. When I'm learning my democratic heritage in the small towns on the Great Plains, which had almost 100% turnout, I was lectured a few times about you don't tell people who you vote for. That's your secret. I always thought that was interesting as we were driving around town stapling up signs on light posts in a small town where everybody knew who was stapling up signs for various candidates on the the light posts and the street corners and stuff like that, that they wouldn't know who I was voting for if, if I, in fact, could vote at that time. But the secret ballot was a real big deal. When did that come in? I'm not aware of that whole history. Oh, over the course of the last half of the 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, so much of the industrial era. I wish I could answer that question more eloquently. And of course, with all the voting rules, they're all local. You know, all politics is local. Your voting rules are local. We have very few rules, federal rules about voting. And that's one of the things that many progressive are asking for, is that we really have, we should have a a unified system of voting for the entire country. And we don't. With the exception of age, it's pretty much about it. After that, it's up to the states to set the rules for voting. That's how they got away with the poll taxes and the literacy tests and all these things over the years. 
Well, and it's why, what was the state, Montana or Wyoming, whatever, was the first one to have women vote, right? Women voting in the Great Plains and uh, the Far West first because they work side by side with their men. And frequently the men died and women folk were still working. They had a lot more respect than what the Eastern establishment gave women as far as the workforce goes. Smaller populations make for better democracy in general. In his book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Tom Hartman also talks about the connection of democracy with like the Iroquois Council, the Iroquois nations that were banded together. And they certainly didn't have democracy as it's practiced in Wisconsin at this point. It wasn't machine voting and all of that kind of thing, secret ballot. But it was much closer to democracy than what I think had been going on in Europe. Am I wrong? Was Tom wrong? No, an argument that I chuckle at is when you start talking about democracy, people that I sense are opposed to everybody voting will bring up the fact that we're a republic. It's not a democracy. Well, in a democracy, demos means people and crassi means rule, I believe. That's that ancient Greek thing, demos and crassi. In fact, in the classroom, that's used to, was how I said it a lot. We have a demos crassi. It's the people rule. Well, how many people do you allow into that rule? That's a question. So the nature of the Iroquois League was huge. It's one of those wonderful parts of history that we probably, as a people, just don't know how big the Iroquois League was geographically. And they sent a chieftain to a common council. And, you know, very simply put... And made rules that uh, worked for a broad swath of people across a large geographic area. I mean, it's upstate New York all the way to the Ohio Valley, southern, you know, the, the lower Great Lakes. When you look at it, a map, it would have been the largest in the world at the time. And some historians say it went all the way back to the 1100s, and there's a lot of argument. And, of course, the lack of written tradition is you know, difficult whenever you're studying our indigenous people. But they were there. They were doing it a long time. <laughs> before anybody else was within, with the exception of, you know, some experiment with the Greeks and the Romans that lasted. When you have the opportunity to read Tom's book, you'll find out the connection that both Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson had, the times they lived with, connected with, and absorbed some of those Iroquois traditions, some of the native traditions that were much closer to that. And women. And women, And women being involved in the process. Well, they ignored that one pretty well, didn't they? They did. <laughs> yes. Oh, All men they are did, didn't equal. they? <laughs> I'm glad I'm at this interview. I just learned something. Right. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Some of our ideas about that came from the native peoples already on this continent before Europeans arrived. Some of it goes back in time, and some of it's writers of the Renaissance and Enlightenment. All those ideas are filtering together. You were teaching high school students about American history, and so democracy is a big part of this, a big part of the view of how our country translates ideals into actions. I guess I don't know what you were actually teaching them. If you were, were you teaching them stand up and salute the flag? Were you fighting with people who believe that America was the best nation and the only democracy in the world? How much struggle was there with the students or... What did you give them to help them make their own evaluation of how democratic we are and what needs to be done in this country? Because, again, the students, the students, the citizens need to do it. So you're teaching the future citizens, the voters of this country. Uh, what kind of struggle was that or what did you give them to get them in that direction? I frequently greeted my students coming into the room by saying, welcome to the most depressing hour of your day, because 
in going through some of these things historically, there are groups, well-respected groups, using good methodology that rank countries based on all kinds of things, healthcare, press, democracy, pulling up various sources. It's, we're only number one in nuclear weapons and the size of our military and our billionaires. I think those are the three categories. That's depressing because students want to, they come in, mine were sophomores in doing this, come in and like I was, you know, yeah, it's a good place to live. I'm okay. And then see that there are countries, I just looked at the ranking of us democratically and a couple, three different sources had us somewhere between 18 to 30 on the democratic scale. Press is pretty bad. Well, I think 180 countries on the uh, Reporters Without Borders website and we're 45. That's because Northern Spirit radio program, Spirit National Song of Soul, don't reach enough of the humanity in this country. If they were all listening to us, we'd be doing much better, don't and, you think? And you're working on that and making great progress. So in another two, three hundred years. Uh, I'll be hitting my prime, yeah. So, yeah, the the rankings, and, and we're not. You know, we're not. And I've had this conversation with adults about, well, in America, we have freedom. In one conversation, they said the person knew had relationships in Australia and Italy and, you know, many different countries of the world. And they said, well, they have freedoms, too. Well, yeah. But that mindset that we're the only one is really progressive. American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's understandable in many ways. I don't fault people for thinking it because, in general, it's a pretty good place to live. And the history that is taught is frequently pretty one-sided, and it doesn't challenge anybody to think. And that was one of my big issues was critical thinking. So what did you do to get them thinking critically? Steer them towards all kinds of different sources where they're going to have to look and see where do we rank in healthcare? Where do we rank in millionaires and billionaires and, you know, the average wage and so on? Where do we rank in the number of people voting and um, your ability to participate in democracy? Press freedom is a huge one, you know, and, you know, just look at it. You know, there's other places in the world that do it really well. We were pretty much first in a modern sense, so we can take a lot of pride in that, that uh, these countries of Northern Europe were all monarchies. Late 1700s, early 1800s, where these wonderful principles were put in place. So we can take some pride in that. But it's a work in progress. I'm wondering where Myron Buckholz thinks we are in terms of the ebb and flow of democracy in this country. And because I know you pretty well, I certainly know where your ideals lie. But I wasn't sitting there in the classroom when you were teaching. So I think that gives you a better view than most people have of the ebb and flow in this country. 2016, Donald J. Trump is elected. 2020 comes along. He makes a big noise because he can't accept losing, I think. And he advocates that the vice president... Mike Pence, was supposed to be able to dismiss the vote and not allow the official vote to happen in the way that it was supposed to. He could just rule, you know, your votes don't count. That is chilling to me. That is the biggest fear I ever had of our country falling completely under a king or something like that. Has there ever been anything close like that before? How chilling was it for you compared to the broad sweep of history that you know about? Well, you know your history, and I alluded to it earlier. It happens 
almost overnight. It's one of the interesting two-sided arguments in our culture is that we have to have weapons to guarantee our freedoms. They say, no, we have to have votes to guarantee our freedoms. Let people vote. I don't want to guarantee freedom at the barrel of a gun. That was Mao, I think. Something about, uh, you know, political power comes in the barrel of a gun. Well, that would be true. If you point a gun at me, I will vote whichever way you want me to vote. Pretty guaranteed. No, very chilling. What soothes my ego so I don't become the old curmudgeon who just says, it's the worst. Our diversity is our strength. I constantly remind people that we had 7 million black and Hispanic voters keeping us from having Donald Trump as a president. We have statistics like every precinct in Iowa had more white votes for Donald Trump in 2020 than in 2016. White people voted for Donald Trump. That authoritarianism is right there at the very surface. Had our diversity and our independent judiciary. And the third component was that, if you recall, a number of 10 or so former secretaries of defense penned an op-ed saying the military has no role in our election. That's huge. That's really huge. So our military leaders from the past, our judiciary stays independent, and our diversity is our strength. And those things got us over this hump. Will it continue? Stay tuned. That's why I say that my way I describe myself was just a retired history teacher watching events unfold like I'm watching a documentary. And some documentaries can be eye-rollingly boring. This one, I think, probably keeps you awake. Yeah, it's keeping many of us away. Yeah, we survived. I mean, we have had times in the past that the Red Scares didn't want to be a labor leader in 1918. Question about today, can you get votes if you're in jail? Well, Eugene V. Debs got three million votes in prison. He was imprisoned for his stance against World War One, basically labeled treason. And uh, the Red Scares of the 1950s focused on a very uh, a smaller swath of American society is uh, uh, labeling that they're unpatriotic and disloyal and so on. This movement seems a little broader to me, which is a little scarier. But back in those days, in the 50s and 18s, our diversity was not so much our strength because we know women, you know, 1918, women aren't voting. In the 1950s, blacks across the South basically are not voting. That's not the case anymore. So I remain optimistic. Well, it's nice to have a starry-eyed optimist in the room with me. I really feel like the students of Eau Claire, Wisconsin Memorial are deprived by the fact that you're not there. I know the creativity, the in-depth thought that you brought to teaching, and I really think that with your charisma and the fact that you are a small-town basketball god, all of those things meant your cred was right up there. The older I get, the better I was. (laughs) It's amazing how this is working. I still think you're pretty damn good, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today for Spirit in Action. This is always fun. Thanks a lot, Mark. And again, this is Myron Buckholz we're talking to, former high school history teacher for some decades and quite the insights that you can provide and quite thinker. And he was at one point also a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the 3rd District Wisconsin House of Representatives. So he's put his values into practice as well. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh